And when you're ready, let's look up. We'll read together. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and verse 2. Here we go. Wherefore, seeing we also are surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and developer of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Calvary was a pitiful sight. It wasn't the serene religious setting depicted in the rearview mirror of history or shown as we consider from the perspective of having received its benefits in the movies, but it was ugly, it was terrible. Everywhere, beauty had been turned to ashes. Everything was sick. The savior of the world was being sacrificed by hypocrites, completely surrounded by corruption on every level. The faultless lamb of God was drowning in a sea of transgression. Consider the scene, if you will, that Jesus looked out upon. And even in his mind as he thought about the events of the past hours into the evening before. There were the sins of the false religious leaders manifest through the priests and spiritual leaders who, being corrupted by jealousy and a lust for control and power, were having Jesus executed. There were the sins of humanism and secularism that were also there at Calvary, manifest in Pilate, who had questioned Jesus at the trial, what is truth in his cynical attitude? And yet, he didn't have enough courage to save a man he knew was innocent. There was the sin of betrayal. We've seen it throughout our lifetime, but Jesus saw it played out in Judas. There was the sin of unfaithfulness represented by Peter and all of his disciples who scattered, fled, denied him. Jesus could not find encouragement anywhere as he looked out from the cross. Everything was sinful. There were the sins of lust, cruelty, and selfish indifference manifested in the soldiers who tortured him and then gambled for his clothing at the foot of his cross. There were the sins of irreverence, which seemed to be the leading characteristic of our popular culture and so trendy today, even among Christians. Those sins of irreverence and pride 
were manifest by the impenitent thief that was crucified on the one side of him, railing against him as he was himself about to enter eternity. And then all the religious mockers sprinkled throughout the crowd below. And then finally, there were the sins of injustice played out against him in an illegal trial with fake witnesses. Why, Jesus' very death was a sin. Some have said he was murdered. But truly, Christ laid down his life for our transgressions. For certain, the entire scene of Calvary said the world is lost and sinking in sin. The good, the bad, and the ugly. None of it was good at Calvary. It was, as I said, a pitiful sight. Yet, Jesus cries out in his agony on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Where does such a comment like that come from? You and I on our best day when we've had a great little fellowship time in our devotional or still high off of a great service we've been in or determined to walk in love and manifest the Lord. How much does it take to break through that, to bring out that ugly part, that fleshy part, I know it's still there in me. I wrestle with it. I know that you do too. But I know that I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb. It's moments like that that I realize I just run, turn, however you want to say it, to Him. And He's right there. He never lets go. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus was divine and human. At the same time, it's very difficult to explain it. Nothing like that has ever existed. But it does explain him. He was not 50% human, 50% divine. He was 100% human, 100% divine. He was the God-man. And yet, <clears throat> that humanity was able somehow to rise above all the ugliness, the betrayal, every bit of it, and say, concerning all of them, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so, as Jesus draws his dying breath in this circus of sin. His vision is fixed elsewhere. He's looking beyond the crowd. He's looking over the head of those that accused him, lied about him, tortured him. He's looking through all of them. He sees something that the scripture that I opened up with describes as the joy that was set before him. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and now is set down. There was a joy. And I assure you, think with me for a moment, it couldn't possibly have been the joy of getting through that. When you and I are in a terrible situation, we're just happy to get through it. Oh, I know. There will be a morning. This night will pass. That was not the joy before Jesus, because if that was his joy, he could have skipped it by just staying home. 
He didn't have to leave heaven, didn't have to come to the earth. But our Jesus was born crucified. For the Bible says that he entered the world as the lamb slain from its founding. He stands at the trial 33 years later and says to Pilate, you don't take my life. I lay it down. I was born for this. Is exactly what he tells Pilate. I was born for this. Days before, as he's traveling to Jerusalem, he tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem in order to be crucified, to be put to death. I don't know how any person could march into the jaws of death like that without having some joy set before them. And then it took the sinless Lamb of God to actually be able to do that for us. Jesus' death, as terrible as it was, was no tragedy. It was a triumph. It was a triumph of love. Hallelujah. A triumph of love that none of the devils of this world would have participated in had they known what it was going to produce. The Bible says, the Apostle Paul writes, says that the devils of this world known, they would have never crucified him. He was plundering their house. He was raiding their treasury. He was leading a train of captives out from the bonds of the galley of sin and bringing them into liberty through his death. There was a joy that was set before Jesus. He saw not the joy of reaching heaven's shores and it all being over with. He saw the joy of bringing us to heaven's shores. Hallelujah. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Jesus, to understand the joy set before him, must be understood for not just who he is, but what he is. He's the agape. The word agape is the word love, but not the love like we have romantically towards one another, or the filio, the, the love that we have of friends and associations, or even eros, the, the passionate uh, love, uh, physical love, or any of the other kinds of loves that we have. His was a, a love that the, that the Scripture uses a, a unique word, agape, means the love that is unique to God Himself. It is, um, it is probably not capable to perfectly define it, but we could use terms like perfect, perfect compassion. A perfect compassion from a heart of genuine, true, paternal, fatherly love. For the Bible says that Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God. The world found out who God was in Jesus. He is that perfect manifestation of the love of God. Come into the world on a mission to save the people that He has made. His death is the terrible high price paid to save us from the fault 
that keeps us from being reunited with the Father who created us. And I would sum it up by saying to you that, that Jesus, in Him, the world learns the greatest and highest truth that's ever been made available to mankind. Three simple words. You've heard them before. God is love. The greatest truth revealed to mankind. God could have been essentially a judge. He is a judge, has every right to judge. Love is worthless if it doesn't have a root in righteousness. Yet in his essence, Jesus is agape. He is love. Had God been essential at his highest quality, simply a judge, then Jesus would have been satisfied to simply let us die in our sins, just as satisfied as we are dropped into hell and eternally separated from God. But Jesus is not essentially a judge. He is going to judge the world, but He is essentially the Savior of the world because God is love. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish. The Lord didn't stop the perishing. He didn't say, I'm going to reverse righteousness. I'm going to change all the rules. Sin is no longer sin. They're still perishing. Had God decided that there was no longer a penalty to pay for sin and that sin was no longer wrong, then Jesus died needlessly. He just could have said, you know what, I've changed my mind. Rules are gone. The universe would have imploded on itself, but the Bible says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that none should perish, but that they should all come to life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. At Calvary, Jesus' eyes weren't focused on the shame that surrounded Him, but on you. The prize of His love that was set before Him was you. Receive Christ as your Savior, and the Father is eager to welcome you into heaven. Jesus isn't a love buffer between an angry God of judgment, the Father, and you. He is the Father, manifest, the perfect love of God. He is the Father that I am telling the world, I am a Father. I made you and I want to redeem you. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me, because He is the Father. No lie will work, only the truth, and that is the truth. Ephesians 1 says it like this, the Apostle Paul writes, For He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and unblemished. Wow, let me stop for a moment. I'm in trouble. Holy and unblemished. I'm going to direct this to my wife. Kathy, am I unblemished? You love me though, right? But I am not unblemished. My wife loves me and in her sight, 
Am I holy? Sometimes. Depends on when you ask the question. So there you go. My wife loves me, and yet she says this morning that I'm not always holy, and I'm not unblemished. In her sight, I have faults. And it's not that God doesn't see my faults, but listen to this. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world so that you may be holy and unblemished in His sight in love. You see, God's love has not made Him blind. It has made you righteous. He sees you through the lens of His Son's action on Calvary's cross. That sacrifice is so loved by the Father, so meaningful, it was more than a gesture. It, he laid the payment down and paid the price. It was not just some act or symbol. As I said, Jesus' death was not a gesture. It was a payment. It was love's payment for a triumph. Hallelujah of love. So that you might be holy in His sight in love. Through that lens of love, the Bible goes on to say in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, He did this by predestinating you and I to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will. There is a Father in heaven that for all eternity has wanted you in His presence. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then it goes on to say, to the praise of the glory of His grace who made you accepted in the Beloved. The joy of love is what? I think probably it's safe to say that most people that are here this morning have had the experience of true love. And if you have truly been in love at some point in your life, I ask you the question, what is the joy? What is the joy of love? I remember I just came from being on Clearwater Beach doing this service at the Sand Pearl for the uh, resort residents. And uh, I shared this with them as I stood on that beautiful beach. And in, in my mind, I was thinking back to 1970. 1971, when my wife and I, dating, engaged, used to go down to the beach after work every day. Uh, we got a couple truck inner tubes and filled them up. We couldn't afford any fancy rafts or anything. Couldn't wait to get out of work through those tubes in the back of her 63 Grand Prix. You said, why did she have the car? <laughs> well, she did. She had the car because she was older than me. So at any rate... Um, Yeah, so, uh, but if people see us together, they know I've surpassed her in age. So, at any rate, uh, we'd go down to the beach in her big 63 Pontiac Grand Prix, and until the sun went down, there we were. I mean, we were inseparable. Both of us, with our bottoms sunk down into one of those inner tubes, bobbing on the water, holding hands, and we'd just sit out there in the shark-infested waters of Clearwater Beach. <laughs> Unafraid, un, unassaulted, unassailed, and just being together. Being together. No greater joy. I had no higher joy than to be with Kathy. I, 
I married her because I didn't want my life to go on without being together. So we've now been married for, let's see, 72, 70, 45 years. And I could say today that if I had to get married all over again, if I had 45 more years, I'd still want to spend them with her. I haven't met another woman in my life, and I'm in the pulpit. May lightning strike me. <laughs> I've never met another woman that I would prefer to have spent the past 45 years with or want to spend the next if I had 45 years, 45 years with. That is a true statement. But I have to say that I do know what the joy of love is. So I ask you, think with me, what is the joy of love? And I'm going to share with you a simple answer, and I'll bet you'll agree, that the joy of love is companionship. Being together. The joy of love is companionship. So if God is love, if He's agape, pure, righteous love, God had to do something so that we could be together, so that you and he could be together. What did love do? It was clear when Jesus came into the world, there was only one option for him. If he were judge, he could have just simply traveled from town to town, pointing out everybody's sins and then saying, you get what you deserve. And, and it would have all turned out that all of us would have dropped into hell. Nobody would have made it. But the fact is that God so loved the world, He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. On Calvary's cross, as pitiful, as sick, as painful and miserable and ugly as it was, it was what had to be done. Jesus died so that you might live. He paid the death penalty for our sins. He marched into heaven's courtroom, His blood the payment, demanded by sin, the death payment, placed it on that judicial bench. This trial is over. This payment's been made. The accused go free. The accuser was cast out. You know, here on earth, lawyers get to leave and go try another case. This lawyer, the devil, the accuser of the brethren, the Bible said, heaven cast him out. Never again to enter heaven. He'll never try another case before the throne of God. God hasn't listened to him in over 2,000 years, and he never will. Because he's got the one who ever lives to make intercession, speaking on our behalf, the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Hallelujah. God sent His Son. When nothing else could help, God sent His Son. The Son gave His life. When nothing else could help, the Son gave His life. And He's coming back again. When nothing else will help, Jesus is coming back again. Hallelujah. Death couldn't hold Him. That's good news for you and I because death can't hold us. Let me say to you that the joy that was set before Jesus was the joy of bringing you home. It was not just the joy of being greeted at heaven's gates as they lifted up their head and said, Oh, the King of glory, let him come in. 
but the fact that he brought a train of captives to liberty. It was not just Jesus, but the bride of Christ that walked through those doors that day. He brought his bride with him. Hallelujah. That's you, that's me. The joy that was set before Jesus was the joy of bringing you home. And let me just go on and add this, that heaven is a place where you are wanted. Don't ever let the devil tell you, well, the Lord saved you because you've received Jesus, but now he's stuck with you. Many of us have felt the pain of being where we're not wanted. You're in the right place, but no one wants you there. Have you ever been there? Tolerated, but not accepted. Many of us have felt what it's like in life to be in the place where they should be, but they're not accepted. They're tolerated. Or, com or, uh, or uh, bound in a relationship where you're no longer loved. Committed, but committed to rejection. It's a horrible pain. Imagine going to heaven as a Christian, but you're really not loved and you're really not wanted. But you prayed the prayer and you believed in the gospel, so you've got to go. But God's angry with you. He doesn't really want you there, but He has to receive you. Heaven is a place where you are wanted more than you've ever been wanted in your life, more than your mama wanted you. If you had a wonderful father, I had an awesome, wonderful dad. I love my dad to this day. Always will. My dad wanted me, wants me now. But my heavenly father wants me more. I've never been wanted more. And by a God who sees the good, the bad, the ugly, everything about me, still loves me, wants me. Hallelujah. Heaven is a place where I'm wanted. That's the joy. It was set before Jesus. The Father said, go on down there and get them. Go get them. Hallelujah. But with Jesus as Lord of your life, you are received in heaven with the love and acceptance that received Him. That is the message of the resurrection. That you are welcomed in heaven with the same Welcome that welcomed Jesus. That was what he did at Calvary. Close your Bible and stand with me this morning.